Okay, yeah, this one works. I think this was even better than the other one. Um, so good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much all for coming. Uh, this is going to be the last uh, in-person class for a while. Uh, I was just told by Angela and by Cozy Luke that um, I'm going to be able to continue these classes online, meeting on Zoom, but starting in February, at the beginning of February. And the reason is because uh, I'm uh, leaving for the South uh, this week. And then I'm doing a lot of travel in that beginning of the winter. So um, uh, uh, I'll be going to South America, to Patagonia. And uh, then um, after that, uh, uh, coming back and doing the, the cruise appointment my grandchildren. After that, I'm going to Africa to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in January. So uh, that's why hopefully I'll come back in one piece. And uh, once I come back at the beginning of February, I'll be able to start teaching again on Tuesdays at two o'clock on Zoom, uh, starting February the 6th. So basically that's my, that's my uh, program. And um, so I wanna welcome you all here for uh, for our last class, and what I thought I would do in this class is to go over a few of the uh, more continuing issues that we've been looking at. And I thought I'd rather start with the one uh, about some very important and frightening figures that were published this week that are read about. And that is that it's talking about how the world is getting warmer. And what they published was, for the month of October, the month of October was the hottest month, the hottest October ever recorded anywhere in, in, um, in the world. And the average temperature, as I've shown over here, was 1.43 degrees Celsius, warmer than the historical average. Now, <clears throat> Um, this is a huge number. It's really, uh, it's, it's, it, we, we, the world was looking at somewhere between about 1.2 and 1.3 degrees Celsius was the amount that the world had been averaging over the last several years. And the hope was that we would never, the, when the Paris Accords were set up 20 years ago, 
to talk about climate change and global warming, they said was, our goal is to limit the world's increase in temperature to 1.5 degrees by 2030. I think it's, I wrote 2035, that is by 2030. So that was the goal. And what they said was, if the world gets any warmer than 1.5 degrees above average, it's going to really cause climatic catastrophes all around the world. Uh, you know, every month or two, we hear about this enormous drought or this enormous flood. And this, this year, at this time, right now, of all places, Somalia, one of the poorest countries in the world, one of the countries that has suffered drought continuously over the last many, many years, is experiencing a huge flood. So it goes to show that, um, you know, the same region can have both a flood and a drought, not at the same time, obviously, but at different times. Both of these events are catastrophes for the people who live there. And right now, Somalia is experiencing a... Uh, a huge flood. The figures that just came out that were published showed that we have 198 countries in the world that are, you know, let's say members of the UN. Of the 198 countries, 196 of them have had above average temperatures this year, and two have had below average temperatures. So, um, the two, in case you're curious, are Iceland and Lesotho, Lesotho, in the bottom of South Africa. Every other country is not above average temperature. So it shows you that there's a trend going on, and this trend is not seemingly, it's not going in a slow, steady line like this, but it's almost going like that. And that's what's so concerning and worries so if the goal was to keep the world's temperature below 1.5 degrees by 2030, and if October was 1.43 already, so you can tell, you know, by the next seven years, it's likely that this number will be surpassed. And, um, and, and really, and really, for the world itself, it's, it's really quite uh, worrisome. For us here in Canada and in northeastern, especially northeastern uh, North America, the um, effects are less than there are in other places. But still, overall, in the world, it really is something that's pretty worrisome. I was reading or looking at pictures that were published in the New York Times this week, and they unearthed a series of photographs that were taken in Greenland by a military pilot in the 1930s. And it showed, uh, you know, I love how they do this. They have a picture of the same glacier in the 1930s, and if you swipe your finger along, it shows what it is today. And it was just unbelievable. They, the, the change was just unreal how much of it has disappeared from 1930 until today. It was just so clear to see as you rolled your finger across. And they had several different pictures of several different glaciers. So you could see 
how um, much they received over the last five-ish years, 90-odd years. In fact, uh, Greenland, for those of you who are, who are uh, we'll call them mineral bugs or investment bugs, Greenland has the greatest possibility of future um, mining development because so much of the glaciers have proceeded showing that you've got, you know, land underneath. And then the prospectors can just look at all that land and see, okay, what's underneath it? You don't have to drill through um, feet of snow and ice because not knowing what's underneath it now, they could just look at the surface and say, oh, this looks promising, this looks promising, and, um, you know, look for valuable minerals there. Remember that in terms of the whole world, much of it has been already looked over, either by air or on foot. And um, uh, if you have just a snow field, you know, taking a picture from the air is not going to do anything. You just see a bunch of snow. But if you have, you know, dry land, from the air, sometimes you can see things that you don't see from, from being on Earth. And um, so Greenland is opening up. It, it, Greenland was, it still is, mostly covered, mostly covered by ice and snow. But the more of it that gets melted off, the more land appears. And that leads us to this, um, uh, we'll call it a, a kind of a vicious circle of warming. Because as the land um, gets uncovered in Greenland, <clears throat> the color of the land is dark and therefore more sunlight is absorbed by the land that's now uh, open. Uh, whereas before the sun would hit all the snow on the surface and bounce back up again, something called the albedo effect. So it's kind of more sunlight reaches the earth, Greenland gets warmer, Greenland gets warmer, more of the glacier melts, more of the glacier melts, therefore more sunlight is absorbed, and then it is like, you know what I mean, a continuous or a continuous circle of melting. And of course, all that water, where does it go of all that melting? It of course ends up in the ocean. And um, that leads to the um, the uh, rise of the sea level. Now, obviously the sea covers uh, somewhere like two-thirds of Earth's surface, and assuming that this ocean, the sea level is the same level everywhere, which is actually not, you know, for argument's sake, it really is. That's why they call it sea level. So all that water, all the ice going into the ocean, it has to fill up a little bit everywhere around the world before the next stage can go up. So the sea level is going to rise slowly and not quickly. But it is rising at a steady rate to the point where another interesting uh, speech came out this week by the uh, president of uh, the, the country called Tuvalu. So it's a country that doesn't consist of much except of a few islands in the Pacific Ocean. And these islands in the Pacific Ocean are not very high. So it's projected that at a certain point, the whole country is going to end up being underwater and the people will have to move. But what the, what the president said was this, was very interesting. He said, you know, 
every country has a 200 mile uh, exclusive economic zone, EEZ. So let's say, for example, here's an island. You get 200 miles around here. Here's another island next in the same country. You get 200 miles around here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these exclusive economic zones are very valuable because you have fishing rights, you have mineral exploration rights on the bottom of the ocean, uh, you have um, uh, even rice, uh, well, mostly those, you know, uh, fishing and other other uh, other uh, sort of exploiting of the sea um, for its uh, for its uh, its potential. And what he said was, we are making a claim today that even if our whole country is underwater, that we want to keep this exclusive economic zone forever, even though. When you go on the ocean, it looks like nothing because our land is all going to be underwater. Maybe the, a, a little spot here and a spot there will be above. But he said that Tuvalu uh, is insisting that the 200 mile exclusive economic zone will remain with our country, even if our country doesn't exist anymore. That means that our people will have to move somewhere else. But we still get to keep all of that. So that it just goes to show you how far ahead some people are thinking when it comes to this uh, whole idea of uh, sea level rise and climate change. So <clears throat> where are we at now as far as that whole that whole issue is concerned? But we know that lots of lots of places have taken concrete steps to lower their um, production of greenhouse gases. And I've said before, the greenhouse gases, which consist of carbon dioxide mostly, <clears throat> and uh, methane, I think methane is this, um, that we know how to lower them, but they're generated by uh, electricity production, so that's the first thing. So that means in power plants, burning coal, burning natural gas, burning oil. And then there's transportation. So, airplanes, cars, and then the ships. So all kinds of transportation, trains. So these, these uh, things burn gasoline, or they burn methane, and that puts up another bunch of, uh, uh, you know, uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. The other four things are from the industry. So industry, especially steel, um, um, cement, and other uh, aluminum, Another man, just general manufacturing, they produce a huge amount of CO2. And the last thing is farming. So farming is especially uh, animal production, rice production, um, produces a huge amount of CO2 also. So a few of these things are being looked at, you know, cars, 
have been uh, changing over slowly to uh, electric cars. Um, electricity production, we now have solar, solar and wind as um, solar and wind as uh, generators of electricity without putting in CO2. There's also a renewal finally of looking at nuclear power, which was being uh, ignored because of the uh, dangers in nuclear uh, power and also the Fukushima uh, disaster in Japan, which uh, closed uh, down a nuclear plant. So the world is now starting to build more nuclear reactors. But this takes 10 or 20 years to build one, so it's, it's a long-term invest. But even with all of this going on, with all these changes going on, the amount of CO2 being put into the atmosphere is growing and not, and not receiving. So what's the reason for that? The reason is, is because First of all, the world's population is growing. So every human being, you know, breathes out CO2 every single day. The amount of uh, food that's needed to feed all these people um, produces more CO2. And especially because people are getting richer on average. So richer people, they want to have more things. They, in, the, in the developing world, that means they'll buy more uh, motorcycles, uh, some of them are buying cars for the first time in their lives. People in India and China, the two biggest countries in the world, um, are getting richer. And they're starting to buy automobiles uh, from the very first time. So it's not like you're trading in one car. Like here, you trade one car in, you get another car. Uh, there, people are buying cars for the first time. Now, it's true that in China, China is the world leader in buying in electric cars in these things. Sale of electric cars, manufacturing of electric cars, they're, they're the, they're the uh, leader. Somewhere around a third of all cars in China today are electric cars. But in, in the US and the rest of the world, we've just scraped over the 5% mark. Between 5 and 10% of cars uh, in the US are now going to be electric cars. Um, so that still leaves a lot of CO2, uh, you know, exhaust going down. One uh, thing that I read today, it was known, but it was just pointed out, is that when it comes to ships, ships are having the opposite uh, effect on the environment. In other words, um, <clears throat> a requirement was put in a few years back to reduce pollution, to reduce atmospheric pollution, the quality of diesel fuel the earth has to be much higher than it used to be. So diesel fuel is like the lowest of the low. It's like on the bottom of the totem, bottom of the totem of fuel. And it contains a lot of extra things in, in the diesel fuel besides um, burnable fuel. And the biggest uh, additional ingredient which is polluting is sulfur. So, so diesel fuel, these, sorry, diesel fuel used to contain up to 5% sulfur 
And they changed the regulations now to make it only up to the half a percent sulfur. So sulfur is a pollutant, it's an atmospheric pollutant. When it goes up in the air, it forms like sulfur dioxide and um, it's a pollutant. But the thing about sulfur is that it also is something that has an effect on cooling the atmosphere, not warming it, cooling it. Because the particles of sulfur that get suspended in the atmosphere reflect the sun when it comes down from the sky. It, it, it hits these particles and then bounces back up again. So the amount of sulfur in the atmosphere um, is a cooling effect. But because there's so much less sulfur in the ship's uh, exhaust, uh, then a lot more sun, of course, gets to hit the surface of the Earth instead of getting pushed back up. And you could see a picture. If you looked at it from the outer space, when the ships go, they leave a trail of exhaust, just like a trail of exhaust from a car. But you could see it. You know, you could actually take a picture of it, and you could see these lines going all, all over the world in the shipping lanes. There's loads and loads and loads of these exhaust trails. There's a lot more than you would think and of course, because they don't have sulfur in them anymore, they don't act to cool the world off. <clears throat> it's not a ship, it's a plane. It's uh, Superman. Um, the other thing that's new, though, on the positive side, is this year, they opened up the very first industrial-sized carbon capture system. So what carbon capture means is you have a machine like that one over there. It's, it, it, it takes carbon dioxide straight from the atmosphere. And what it does is it passes the air. Because you can't take carbon dioxide straight from the atmosphere. You've got to take all the air. And if you pass the air over these um, um, uh, plates, or trays, we'll call them trays. And on the tray, they just put powdered limestone, which is uh, the cheapest material you can possibly find. When the air passes over the, the limestone, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reacts with that limestone, and it becomes a kind of a new, um, uh, a new uh, chemical. And then it's uh, you can take that chemical and just take it out and you know change your change your tray, put new crushed limestone on, and the old stuff you can just pack away and make it into cement. So in other words, you freeze the carbon dioxide inside the cement that you just made. So this has always been uh, an idea that people had, but there actually is a plant that is doing it now on an industrial scale, and they are paid by the ton of carbon dioxide that they remove from the atmosphere. So um, it, right now, um, they are being paid somewhere around $100 a ton, and it costs them $600 a ton to do this job. So it doesn't pay at this point. But what they say is, is that they can scale up the production to make it pay. And anyway, that would be certainly uh, a direct way of reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's a sort of step-by-step -step process that happens. Um, 
Uh, let me just see something else that I've been of course, you know that um, the, uh, the the environmentalists don't like this idea of carbon capture because they say that all you're doing is uh, delaying the transition from not from fossil fuels to something else. If somebody says, oh, well, the carbon dioxide problem is not so severe, then we'll do the amount of time it takes to transfer to something else. But you know that this, we're starting to get, like, countries made commitments. Uh, the Western world made commitments to um, the UN to, uh, to, to reduce their carbon dioxide. And it's one thing to make a commitment, but now you have to actually have to take steps to do it. And that's where all of a sudden politicians are finding opposition to it. So you heard that Prime Minister Trudeau announced that there would be no sales tax charged on fuel, uh, on, 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 on diesel fuel in Newfoundland because that's the only thing, the only thing they have to eat the homes with. And then other places have said, well, we also want this reduction in our sales tax. In Europe, in Germany, they announced a plan to ban all gas stoves and all gas heating as of a certain day. And all of the people there said, well, wait a minute, you know, we like our gas stoves and we don't want to change to another form of heating. And it's become a kind of a crisis of. Uh, uh, practicalities. Should the politicians stand for something that their constituents don't want? And it's one thing to say, well, we want to, you know, fix the world. And it's another thing for somebody to walk into your gas stove and put a, a big X on it and say, get rid of it. Now you need to get another kind of stove. So, um, you know, this is where the, the something is hitting the fan, put it like that. Um, um, and um, um, the, um, the Conservatives in Canada, uh, Conservative Party, which is likely to win the next election, they wanted to go much slower on um, the environment than the Liberals MP have. And since um, Alberta is too big uh, part of their support. Um, they don't want to force the end of oil production in Canada. They don't want to put controls on the environmental laws that these oil companies have to follow. And uh, it just means the kind of backward going, and not only in Canada, but in many other places, when people uh, try to kind of, uh, you know, force Forced decisions on, on, on the people at large. Um, uh, China and India are still building coal-fired electric, electrical generation plants, even though coal is the dirtiest fuel that there is. But it's also the cheapest for those countries that have it. But anyway, that's just a kind of a quick look at that. And we're going to go to something else. Um, um, 
yeah, that's, you know, as people get richer, it's not only that they demand more cars and they travel more, but also they can afford air conditioning, which uh, takes a, a lot of um, electricity to, to produce. And eating, you know, food, eating beef and chicken and fish, when before they were eating just grains, means a lot more carbon dioxide produced in the uh, farming sector. Um, so uh, also, we should also say that this is an El Nino year. And El Nino, you know, is a uh, natural phenomenon which occurs sometimes every seven years, sometimes, you know, sooner than that. In general, it means it warms up the earth from, um, from what it normally is. And uh, the prediction is that this uh, El Nino is getting stronger and stronger. But oddly enough, we haven't had the effects of the normal effects of what happened in the El Nino year haven't happened yet. So people are saying, well, maybe, you know, it's just a matter of time before the uh, normal sort of uh, occurrences with the El Nino before they happen. And in general, they're predicting for the southern U.S. a much wetter winter um, and in, in uh, uh, you know El Nino usually brings a lot of rainfall to the west coast of Canada, west coast of the US, west coast of Mexico, west coast of uh, South America and um, you know so that remains to be seen. So I'm going to leave this subject for now because I just want to review some different things that are going on in the world and we'll get to our favorite one soon. The war in the Ukraine uh, is another one. It's, it's, you know, this coming February will be two years since that war started. Seriously. And um, where I, while there's great, been great disappointment that over the summer, the Ukrainians didn't push the Russians back, uh, even though the Ukrainians received so much military equipment and um, military aid, uh, they tried to push the Russians back and the Russians held the lines pretty well everywhere. But the fact is that for Russia, the war is a bigger failure in the sense that they're the ones who invaded the Ukraine with the aim of getting rid of the country, of overthrowing the government and installing their own people in, in charge, and they haven't been able to do it. And it's costing the Russians huge amounts of soldiers, of deaths, of wounded, and huge amounts of money to spend on this war, which uh, they can't use for other purposes. So it doesn't mean because the Ukraine hasn't kicked the Russians out that they that they have lost the war. They managed to keep the Russians from conquering them. So it means that they didn't win the war. I don't know if any of you saw the reporting that was on the TV this week, and I don't remember whether it was CBC or CNN or somewhere like that. But what they're showing is that the Russians are purposely trying to get items of cultural importance for the Ukrainians, uh, churches, museums, um, other uh, centers of culture that they are purposely bombing to break them, to kind of break the spirit of the Ukrainian people, 
uh, and to, in a certain sense, prove, as as Putin said, there's that you know that Ukrainians are not a real people, and that Ukraine is not a real country. So if you can get rid of all of the uh, distinctive Ukrainian cultural items of significance, then you can sort of show, well, you know, that these people are just Russians just like us. And, you know, they speak a slightly different language, but they don't have a right to have their own country. So, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, Putin doesn't show any signs of saying, okay, I've had enough, let's make a deal. And the on the other hand, Ukraine says we're not making any deals unless the Russians get out of our country completely. So you can see how a stalemate has arrived. I read something interesting yesterday, it was just in one little place that said that the Russians are preparing to retreat from the uh, south of the um, the Dnipro River, which is right now the boundary between the forces on two sides. And see, this is the Dnipro River here, and this, the city of Kherson is here. Which so the Russians at one point were in this whole area to the north, and they retreated to south south of the river. The river ends up emptying into the Black Sea um, over here. Um, and the um, um, Ukrainians apparently have actually managed to make some small landing across the river and bring some equipment over there in a very small spot. So it depends on whether this is going to continue or not, but it, it's forcing the Russians to bring their forces. Right now, the Russians are fighting out here with the Ukrainians to try to move this way into the Ukraine, and it's the Ukrainians that have held them off over here in uh, in uh, in that sector in the northeast. Um, so. Uh, with very small exceptions over the whole summer, the Ukrainians haven't really um, advanced to capture hardly any territory from the Russians. It's been a one year of pretty well, well stalemate. Um, now, oh, you have also heard that the US is a mess, so we're going to go into that. And, and this mess that they're having is preventing the Ukrainians from getting more money to fight against the Russians. There is a, a large part of the Republican Party in the United States that doesn't believe that giving the Ukraine money is a good idea. Um, there's a lot of very conservative Republicans who don't believe spending any money outside of the US is a good idea. Um, but uh, when it comes to the Ukraine, there is a feeling somehow among Republicans that uh, we're just throwing good money after bad. A lot of Republicans disagree, though. But uh, President, uh, ex-President Trump, he's one of those people who says, "Well, we shouldn't give them any money," and uh, it's not because 
they want to so-called balance the budget. Because when Trump was president, the, the budget was the, the, the most unbalanced to date, you know, uh, up until, um, you know, the, up until uh, this administration. So when the Republicans are complaining about a balanced budget and say, well, we can't afford to give Ukraine any money. Well, when they were in power, they had a very unbalanced budget. So uh, it's an excuse really in that way. Um, you know, the U.S. is going, going to go through starting this week, starting Friday, this Friday, um, the whole crisis of funding the government is going to start all over again. And if the government is not funded, it means the government has to shut down and um, not pay its workers and not pay its veterans and not give out uh, certain monies to citizens, uh, certain types of pensions and certain types of welfare all have to get cut off if the government doesn't receive authorization to continue borrowing money. And, uh, you know, this is an ongoing crisis that we've seen so many times in the past. The United States is the only country where the um, parliament has to vote each year to fund the government for things that it normally does. Usually when you have a vote, say, in the House of Commons, the vote is for a new type of spending or, or different priorities. And it's not to keep the lights on. In, in, in the uh, you know in the parliament bill those those expenditures are automatic to to how the government spends money but in the US Congress has the right to the, the the obligation to approve each year's spending of the government and if they don't approve it it means the government can't spend any money so uh, this crisis is now coming to a head out of Friday. And uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, you know, uh, there are people in the Republican Party who just don't believe in, in the government at all. So they would like to see the government shut down. And it's going to require some skillful maneuvering by the uh, new uh, Mr. Johnson, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, to get some kind of spending bill through. Um, and that also includes aid for Israel because uh, the, uh, the Congress approved $14 billion of aid for Israel, but it hasn't been voted on by the, um, by the Senate and the House of Representatives because um, when the House of Representatives passed this $14 million bill, they said it's conditional on removing $14 million from the IRS. But to my thinking, as I've said before, if you want to raise money for the government and balance the budget, you should be giving more money to the IRS, not taking away money from the IRS. Internal Revenue Service, meaning the tax collection agency. So um, uh, that's, it's, it's, that's where things are standing right now. It's frozen. The U.S. government is dysfunctional because of this extreme split in jurisdiction between the Senate and the House of Representatives and the President. And all three have to agree on the exact same wording of the exact same bill in order for it to become law. And since the Republicans control the House of Representatives, the Democrats control the Senate, it looks like a kind of a, 
you know, what they call a Mexican standoff, call it like that. It's not to disparage Mexicans at all. Um, Oh, yeah. um, Ukraine is applied to go back to that to become a member of the EU. And uh, the EU is getting to be uh, quite accepting of this potential, potential addition. Um, of course, this would send Russia into a complete uh, tizzy because they want to uh, you know, the Ukraine away from the European Union, but they pushed it into the arms of the European Union, just the way they pushed Sweden and Finland into the arms of NATO. So uh, their campaign, the Russian campaign, besides conquering certain territories, um, hasn't really yielded any great political uh, returns and has cost the country a Billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, but, you know, we can't admit that he made a mistake. Uh, it, would be a it would be horrible for him to say, okay, you know, we haven't achieved what we thought we would. We're going back to where we were, we were before. Um, you know, uh, dictators can't do that. They have to show that they are the strong all the time. Once you say, I'm retreating, it shows you're weak, and then there's a chance you could get overthrown. So that's that's that over there. Um, the, the Ukrainians have, all, already, have also started to use high tech to attack Russian bases far from where the, um, where the, uh, where the, uh, the battle lines are. They're reaching far into deep into Russia itself, into the Crimean Peninsula, using high-tech missiles and guidance systems to blow stuff up. They also have embarked on an assassination campaign to kill people who are what they call collaborators inside the occupied parts of the Ukraine. So it's not like they're just working on the front lines, they're working behind the front lines. So that's also an important thing to remember. Um, so now let's come back to the war with Hamas, which I'm going to So, you know, I would say things are proceeding as we knew they would, which is that Israel is destroying the Gaza Strip. The um, civilian casualties, of course, are going up. The world's cameras are focused on the casualties, and the you know the various world leaders are now asking for ceasefires and for Israel to stop killing civilians. Um, and whereas the original deed, the original attack, the massacre happened on one day. Uh, Israel's military campaign is going on day after day, and the focus of the news uh, reporters and the whole world is not what happened, you know, weeks ago. And the longer it goes, the longer the time passes since the original attack by Hamas. And so the pressure on Israel is growing and growing and growing to to do something. Um, 
It's not clear that Israel had any kind of medium or long-term plan over what they would do. Um, uh, Mr. Netanyahu made a statement this week saying that Israel wants to stay in the Gaza Strip. And uh, the world leaders, Mr. Biden, said, no, 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 this is not what we uh, signed up for. And uh, we would much rather say that you said, look, that a new Palestinian uh, government should take over Gaza, but not you yourself. So it looks like, um, you know, that's a point of friction coming on. There have been several Israeli politicians who said, well, why don't we're, we're asking the world to take the Gazan people and, and give them asylum in their different countries. In other words, we will kick the Palestinians out of Gaza and you take them as refugees in Germany, in Sweden, in England, in France, etc., etc., etc. Of course, the world leaders are saying to them, well, look, if you don't want them, why should we take them? That, that type of thing. And we, we know who these people are, so we don't want to have more disruptions. We already have enough disruptions in our countries over, over these, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Arab-Israeli wars. We don't need a whole bunch more fuel to add to the fire. So, um, you know, it, nobody really knows. I mean, I don't know, and people don't know what Israel's plans are for Gaza or to eliminate Hamas. I have an idea of what they, what I think they might be trying, which is once they quote, uh, take over all of North Gaza, where they, um, they asked all the people to leave, and they've blown up all the tunnels, and they make sure that there's no hostages there. At that point, they're going to say, the two million people who are now in South Gaza, everybody has to move to North Gaza. And then we're going to clean out South Gaza and um, uh, you know, get rid of the tunnels there and see if we can find the hostages there. So, of course, all of North Gaza is completely ruined. There is not, not a standing house to be seen. So um, if they move the people to the north, you know, it would be a way of saying, okay, now in stages we've conquered all of Gaza. First we did this north, then we're doing the south. Um, otherwise, once they finish securing the north, if they don't move the people, you have much more people concentrated everywhere. You saw people are sleeping in hospital yards and school yards and parking lots. Uh, you know, they have nowhere to go. Um, so how could Israel conquer South Gaza with even more people squashed in there than, than you know, North Gaza where they got rid of half of the people to start with? So um, it, it, Israel is, is in a bind, you know. And Netanyahu said we want to take over Hamas, take over Gaza Strip and free the hostages. But, uh, you know, tragically, and I don't know if this is true or not, the, the one hostage they said was killed by Israeli bomber. And they showed a picture of her alive when they caught her, and then they showed a picture of her dead body. Of course, they could have killed her and then just said, um, look at what you did. It's already clear, as Israel has long stated, that the Hamas is using hospitals and schools as, uh, as military uh, headquarters. Um, the 
some of the some of the films that Hamas has shown uh, were shown to be fake. Uh, you know, they they were uh, you know spliced together from all different sources. Um, Hamas is not um, unsophisticated when it comes to use the media for its own aims, and of course, uh, you know, they have staged in the past. They have staged kind of shootings and then brought the press to look at it. And then after the press takes pictures, all the guys who are shot, they just get up, wash off, and take blood and walk away. So it's happened. It has happened in the past. Doesn't mean it's happening now, but um, the world has to be very uh, skeptical sometimes uh, over what Hamas produces. And they always say, you know, we can't verify these figures. We can't. There's nobody that they could interview. Uh, one thing that came came out this week was that Israel uh, tried to give the, uh, oil, diesel oil, diesel fuel to the hospital, and um, Hamas um, stole it. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's not easy to deliver something. You know, you have to do it kind of carefully because you don't want to. You're still in a war, right? So they they try to make this transfer by civilian. Uh, Operatives, and then when the oil got to to the hospital, Hamas just took it. So you know they're not. This kind of thing is is um, is um, part and parcel of the warfare that goes on. It's not just military warfare, but it's also psychological warfare. It's media warfare, and. Um, uh, in a certain way, Israel is on the back foot uh, in all aspects of the war except for the military part. And uh, the non-military part is very important because the whole world nowadays gets to see everything. Needless to say, uh, you know, this war has had repercussions abroad. Uh, Anti-Semitism and anti-Israel demonstrations all over the place, pro-Palestinian once everywhere in London, they had an enormous pro-Palestinian uh, demonstration with about 300,000 people there. And um, I don't know if any of you saw TV last night. Did you see? Uh, CNN did a series on anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, they did a, uh, a one-hour special uh, showing how anti-Semitism has grown uh, since the Hamas war got started. And uh, of course, we know I'm right here in Montreal. Um, I was uh, like I go I go to the Y every every day, YMHA, and uh, which is located right next to Ursula High School. And there was a cop cars right in front of the high school to get two cops sitting in. So um, you know the uh, you know the threat is there. It's something that has. Uh, uh, sort of increased. And what this program showed was anti-Semitism has always been around. It's not a new invention. But the um, the report that was made was the election of Trump in, um, in uh, 2016 kind of allowed the right-wing anti-Semites to come out of the woods. And Trump refused to condemn them. And uh, therefore, their movement just got stronger and stronger and stronger. The uh, Palestinian 
war with Hamas has allowed the left-wing anti-Semites to come out of the uh, woodwork and, um, you know, to uh, demonstrate and to, uh, uh, you know, to, to um, use Israel as an excuse to be anti-Semitic. And, you know, it's always a question of saying, well, you know, if you criticize Israel, are you being anti-Semitic? And everybody says, no, that isn't the case. That um, you can certainly criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. I mean, in Israel itself, um, more than half of the people are criticizing the government. Uh, and they're saying all kinds of bad things about the government, which it deserves. But um, that's not anti-Semitism. But to say, well, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's their slogan. So what does it mean? What's, what's the actual meaning of that? Let's, let's look at it. Well, let's just have a little look here. Okay, sort of, sort of. So this is Palestine from 1920 to 1948, under British rule. This is Palestine, here's Tel Aviv. Jaffa was the biggest Arab city. Here's Jerusalem, over here somewhere like that. More like this, and like that. This is Haifa over here, the uh, third biggest city in Israel. Um, this is the Jordan River. And this is the Mediterranean Ocean right there. So today, today, the Gaza Strip is over here like this. And the West Bank such as it is, is like that. Um, these areas, this area is occupied by Israel, but it isn't, it isn't been annexed by Israel. So if somebody says, from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free. Here's the river, and here's the sea. So what's in between? It's, it is all Palestine. But they're not saying we want the Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza. What they're saying is that all of Palestine will be free. Meaning what? It's free already. Israel is a democracy. People can vote. What they mean is that the Palestine should not be a Jewish state anymore. That either the, either the Jews should get kicked out or some there isn't a, there isn't another suggestion so when you say from the river to the sea palestine shall be free what you're saying is you want all the jews out of there which is you know seven and a half million people so it is an anti-semitic state to say that it's not it's a political statement but it's also an anti-semitic state what they're saying is we think that israel should not exist as a jewish state but but the United Nations in 1947 voted for a Jewish state in Palestine. It wasn't like the Jews took the land from the Arabs. The British had it in, in these years here. 
The United Nations voted to split Palestine into two states, an Arab state which would have been, this would have been the Arab state here, Okay, so I'm going to do like this. So this would have been the Arab state, A, A, A. And this would have been the Jewish state, J, J, J. A crossover point here, a crossover point over here. You can go like this, like this, like this. Jerusalem and Bethlehem would be international cities. That's what the UN proposed in 1947. But the Jewish side said, yes, we accept. The Arab side said, no, we don't accept. So they, then after they didn't accept it, when Israel became a state in May 1948, the Arabs invaded. They invaded from the north. They invaded from the northeast. They invaded from the east. They invaded from the south. And they lost. They happened to... They lost. They lost this piece here. They lost this piece over here. And they lost all this piece over here. So that's how you end up with Gaza over here and the West Bank over here, which from 1948 to 1967, I mean, these places were not under Israeli control. So where was the demand for Palestinian state in these years, they could have had one. The, the, the Israel didn't control this territory, and Israel didn't control this territory. So, you know, to say that Israel has prevented a Palestinian state is something that is ignoring what real history is and what the facts are. And, um, you know, most people, most, especially those college students that are running around demonstrating with Palestinian flags, I guarantee you, none of them know this. None of them. Now, the Palestinians themselves know it. They know it for sure. But um, what they say is, we don't want to look backwards, we only want to look forwards. And um, Yasser Arafat himself, he made a statement saying, you know, we should have taken the 1947 deal. But you can't go backwards. You can't say, oh, yeah, I now accept the 1947 deal. Hey, you know, you fought two wars against Israel since then, or more than two, but two where you lost territory, you're not going to just give it back. That, that, that's not how things work. So um, that's how we got to where we are, uh, you know, today. But you could say this, that all of these demonstrations show to Jewish people living abroad sort of who their friends are and who their enemies are. You kind of can get to uh, identify them in that way. Um, and we have lots of friends and we have lots of enemies. And, you know, we, we could see that in, in, you know, statements and newspapers and all kinds of things like that. So it's uh, no it, the the um, the program on TV were interviewing students at universities and asking them, "Are you afraid? You know, are you walking around being afraid?" And a lot of them said, "Yes, we are." Um, 
I don't know if the general public at large should feel that way. In other words, at least in the Western countries, uh, there is a system of law and order. Uh, there is a police force. Uh, you know, individual acts of terrorism can happen, but it's not going to affect the entire community. But on in universities where the 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 sort of battle lines are more uh, strongly drawn, uh, I could definitely see uh, students, um, you know, not feeling comfortable when you have the sea of Palestinian flags all over the place. Uh, okay, so comments, questions, any um, anything like that? Yeah, yes, more than. This was now the master of the main nation to be seven. The Quran said, When the river for the sea, Palestine should be free of Jews. Uh, no, I, I don't, I, no, I didn't, I don't know that. And I, that I didn't say. But, but Palestine should be free. The question is, well, if you, if you think about, well, what does it actually mean? It will be free. Like, so, I mean, let's put it like this. Uh, today, today, if you take all these people living over here, everybody, and let's pretend everybody was a citizen of a new state called Israel-Palestine, okay? As, 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 as the Palestinians had wanted back in 1947. What they wanted was no partition. What they wanted was that Great Britain would give up this whole piece of territory. It would be called Palestine. It would be a democracy. And in those days, there were two-thirds of Arabs and one-third of Jews living in this whole piece of territory. And therefore, the Palestinians said, well, why should, we're the majority in, in, in this land. Why should we carve it up and uh, lose uh, half of it uh, when we're the ones who are the majority. So that was their argument. And this, from their point of view, it sort of makes sense, you know? But, you know, they didn't think of what the alternatives were. But today, assuming that you don't kick the Jews out of here, if Palestine is one state, the Jews would still be in majority. So how would Palestine be free? Would that mean that Palestine is free if everybody's a citizen? Um, some of the people who say that slogan, what, there's, what they claim is, some of them claim, well, what we don't mean is that we don't mean that this should become all a state of Palestine. What we mean is, what we mean is that all the Palestinians living in both Israel today and in the West Bank and Gaza, that these people shall be free. In other words, they won't be second-class citizens the way they are today. Okay, it's an argument, but that's not the same thing. It's not saying from the river to the sea, Palestinians will be free. They're saying Palestine will be free. It's a big difference between those two, those two things, you see? Um, and like I said, the vast majority of people who are walking around with the flags, their perception is Palestinians are the underdogs. Palestinians are the, um, the uh, non-white people. And we stick up for non-white people, just like we stick up for blacks, Latinos, gays, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's another 
harass the majority, then we have to support it. And that's the majority of non-Muslim, non non-Arab people who are attracted to that slogan. That's kind of how they perceive it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and what they don't perceive is that, and they also perceive this, that the Palestinians as being indigenous to this territory, and the white colonialist European Jews came to there to kick them out, just like the Australians came to, to suppress the indigenous people in Australia, the Aboriginals, just like they came in New Zealand and suppressed the Maoris, just like in America, uh, the English and French came to suppress the, the indigenous peoples there. So what their model is simple, that the Palestinians are the natives and the Jews were the colonialists. That's how they see it. But of course, it's not the same because the Jews were the original inhabitants of that place. Um, well, not, they weren't the original ones, but they're the surviving original ones. That if you uh, go to the Israel Museum, you see all kinds of artifacts, of Hebrew artifacts plus the Dead Sea Scrolls that were there long before the Arabs ever came there. So the claim that the Jews are indigenous to this territory is a valid claim, number one. Number two, half of the Jews who live here are themselves of Arab origin, meaning they came from Arab countries and they are as dark-skinned as the Arabs are in general. So even the sort of racial component isn't a good, a good uh, fit for their, for their model. And, um, but, you know, things get all, things get all exaggerated and, 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 and then the ends justify the means and you have this idea of intersectionality, which means that if you support climate change, you have to support the Palestinians. If you support gays, you have to support the Palestinians. If you support blacks, you have to support the Palestinians. That idea of linking things together. Needless to say, in, in, in the Palestinian society, gays and transgenders and women are, are at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, they're, they're not at all uh, you know, part of an equal society the way they are in Israel. So that's you know, neither here nor there, let's put it like that. Um, anybody else? Let's look around here. You have to speak louder. Bernie Sanders? Yeah, surprisingly, Bernie Sanders made a very strongly pro-Israel uh, speech and statement. Um, what? Yes, uh, well, he's a senator. He's a senator. He's a senator, but he, but he he supported he supported what the four of them said, but he made a very strongly pro-Israel uh, statement when this massacre happened, and um, yeah, he uh, he didn't mince words, you know. Yes, he's in favor of a ceasefire, of course, but the fact is that um, there are some people around who are saying that the Israelis deserved what they got on, on October the 7th. Some people are even saying that October the 7th didn't really happen, that this is all a, uh, a kind of a fake uh, news, uh, uh, you know, uh, invention of the Israelis to get sympathy. Um, things, 
the internet can multiply and exaggerate and then lead off into all kinds of uh, crazy territory because anybody can say anything and it gets published. Once it gets published, it can be reset, reposted, reused, re, uh, and that's how things get around the world. Um, you know, the news that it wasn't the Israelis who bombed the hospital in the Al Ahli Hospital uh, in Jabalia. Um, that that news is not is 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 um, you know not publicized. In fact. That Israelis bombed the hospital is still up there in all the different sites if you keep repeating it and looking for it. So, um, you know, that's just a fact of life. That's a sign of our times. Um, the longer this campaign goes on, the more support Israel is going to lose. It has to be, can't be any other way. And, um, uh, uh, the the uh, you know the uh, the more radical members of the Israeli government, like like one of them who said that uh, uh, one of them said, well, all we should do is just to drop a nuclear bomb on Gaza. So this is this is the the, the extent of the right wing and kind of uh, racist uh, feeling that a lot of the Israeli government members have on the right wing. And all that does is encourage Israelis, it encourages the countries that are supporting Israel to say, well, wait a minute, you know, now there's two radical elements here. We should just not get involved or whatever, you know, not support Israel anymore because look at who is spokesman for the government. And, um, so, you know, this is an example of Israel shooting itself in the foot by allowing these things to go on. And also, in the West Bank, Israel is trying to control, you know, what goes on there. They're, they're trying to control the northern border here. And the, um, the settlers and the supporters of the right wing in Israel have taken this Hamas attack as a reason to take action against Palestinians who are living here. And, uh, you know, there have been so many cases of Palestinians being killed and, and their cars being burned and their olive trees being uh, destroyed. And all of this gets on the media and all of this gets on TV. And all of this is another reason for the world to look at Israel and say, well, you know, they're both bad. They're both two sides of a coin, two, two, you know, two, two sides of a coin. So. Um, Israel is facing a media nightmare. Some of it is its own making, and some of it is just naturally what's going to happen when you're fighting the war. Um, and you're the ones who have all the weapons and all the big weapons. And the other side doesn't have any weapons or very small ones. So naturally, the sympathy of the world is going to go to the underdog. And right now, Hamas is the underdog. So uh, it doesn't, it, it, you know, Israel has been told by Mr. Biden, finish this up fast because the thread that you're hanging on is getting thinner and thinner. And, um, you know, uh, so Israel is stuck. They're stuck between two sides. And there's no easy way out for Israel at this point. There is some hope that they're negotiating over hostages, some hostages, 
But in order to get those hostages, Israel will have to release thousands of Palestinians from, from jail that Israel has them in, and then the whole cycle can start over again. Um, any other comments, questions? Let me see what so, uh, yeah, did you have something? But you have to speak with anyone. Right. Oh, you mean, uh, yeah, well, the whole war of posters is one where, you know, uh, Israeli sympathizers put up posters of the hostages and those get torn down. So. No, you're talking about but these posters are. Or is it paid advertising type of thing, or just like handmade posters that people slap up all over the place? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you're not allowed to put up posters in the metro or anywhere else. If you put them on the telephone pole, cat lost, dog lost, garage sale, you know, they're supposed to be taken down. Um, it's like I said, it's a media war. It's not just a war on the ground between the soldiers. It's a media war. And um, it's a war of public opinion. And unfortunately, people who don't know the facts uh, can easily be seduced by the whole idea of David and Goliath. And uh, the, uh, you know, the Arabs or the Gazans are the Davids and the Israelis are the Goliaths. So it's, it's, Israel is caught in the tough spot which they knew they would be caught in. They knew it in advance. Not only did they know it in advance, Hamas knew it in advance. Hamas never said, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to carry out this attack on Israel. We're going to kidnap soldiers. We're going to kill some civilians. And we know there's going to be a response. We know that the Israelis will come into Gaza and start to destroy. They didn't know how much. That's the part they didn't know. But they knew that was going to happen. And their aim was to try to inflame the Arab and Muslim world to attack Israel from all sides once Israel started to destroy Gaza. So there would be an attack from Lebanon, that the Palestinians in the West Bank and even in Israel themselves would rebel, and you know the whole Middle East would go up in flames. The end of the peace between Israel and the other Arab countries would happen, between Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, that Saudi Arabia would cut off ties with Israel. They've achieved half of what they expected to achieve. To achieve. So, you know, from, a, from that point of view, uh, Hamas is, is definitely not losing in, in what they tried to do. Their, their, game, their game plan is half, is half been half successful. So, you know, they, they might have bit off more than they can chew, but that's something that's hard to say. Yes. Uh, no, it's not so. Uh, Bahrain, one of the countries uh, uh, that Israel signed the peace accord with, just removed their ambassador from Israel. Um, uh, Turkey, of course, removed their ambassador in Israel. Um, 
the Saudis have uh, appeared at an all Arab meeting and said, you know, uh, we support the Palestinians 100%. So, uh, um, no, it's impossible that Al Jazeera and other Arab news agencies that show the destruction in Gaza, it's impossible that that destruction doesn't uh, affect the citizens of those countries say, our government better not do anything to help Israel or to have relations with Israel. They could. They, they could survive that. It's impossible. I mean, you see it. You know, on TV every single day, you know, men crying and women crying and babies in, in the incubators that have no heat. I mean, how, how could a country like that, uh, how, how could a host country, like say, I don't know what, Oman or another country, then say, oh, we're, we're going to make relations with Israel? You know, that the government wouldn't last a day. It's impossible. So, no, the, the cost of Israel's actions in this in this campaign are go far beyond the um the cost of the soldiers and the cost of the war obviously israel's economy has really hit a downturn uh, the like i said before I, I was looking just the other day the shekel was around four to the dollar where it was 3.27 to the dollar you've got half a million people in israel not working because they're either in the army and they've been evacuated from where they're living in the border areas. Uh, today, if you look at the papers, all the farmers can't pick all the crops that they've had because you know all the workers, Palestinians and the and the Thai people are all gone. And yes, there's a few volunteers that come in, but those volunteers can't keep coming in because if they're coming in to pick cabbages, well, what about the work they're supposed to be doing? So. It's, um, uh, you know, it, it definitely has an effect. And the longer the war goes on, the worse it's going to be for Israel. Let's put it like that. Um, okay, so listen. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Yes, Jordan also recalled the ambassador. Egypt also. Egypt, um, well, Egypt is is the one in a certain sense which is the most affected by this war because they're right on the border of Gaza. Because Israel has has kind of asked Egypt, look, if we remove a million people from Gaza and put them inside, you know, and we, we pay to set up ten camps and camps when you take them. And Egypt said absolutely not, you know. Um, uh, the uh, no, the, the remember that any any Arab leader who who looks even neutral uh, to in this war, the public opinion on the street is very strongly against them. So they have to make sure they they keep their jobs and uh, they can't be seen. Um, um, you know, as being in any way sympathetic to Israel. The country which is now in the spotlight is Qatar. Because Qatar is a country which has been sort of the main support of the Palestinians, especially in Gaza, especially in Hamas. And Qatar is now the country which has great relations with the United States. There is a military base of the U.S. in Qatar. 
And they are right now the center of negotiations between Hamas and Israel uh, over the fate of the hostages. And um, Qatar is also the, the place where the money comes from to support Gaza. Because Gaza has no economy. Uh, you know, the people are getting money from the UN Relief Agency. And besides the UN Relief Agency, Qatar is the only source of money going into the country. So, you know, that's why they're so important in this whole, in this whole thing. And Qatar is one country and the Arab countries do not want anything to do with Israel. So even though Israel is negotiating with Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates, Qatar was the, was the one outlier, you know? Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, no country wants to take them. It's not just the Egypt. Well, I mean, look, it's like, it's like, look, I mean, from the Palestinian point of view, they say, look, you kicked us out of our lands in 1948. Then you occupied land in 1967. Um, what you want is to get rid of all Palestinians in the whole country. And we don't want to let you do that. So uh, it's like ethnic cleansing. Well, I mean, let's put it like this. Accepting migrants is not been a popular political stand anywhere. I mean, Italy and France, they've had elections on this whole issue, and even in Great Britain, where they're trying to keep little boats away from Great Britain. So uh, nothing to do with Palestinians, but have waves of migrants like in the U.S. coming in. No, there's nobody that wants it. And for sure, they're not going to want Palestinian migrants that have no money and have possibly terrorist connections. So for sure, you know, if it's Israel's problem to solve, the Arab countries are not going to solve it for Israel. That's for sure. Yes, over there. Did, I, did the Jewish one? Well, let's put it like this. You have to understand this. Uh, of the people, there's two million people who live in this tiny little place that's 10 miles wide by about 30 miles long. Okay? Two-thirds of the people who live there now are descendants of refugees that were either kicked out or moved out of Israel in 1947-48 when the war broke up. One third were there all the time. They were the native Gaza people. Um, like I said, uh, when 2005 happened, when the Israelis removed all their troops from Gaza and they removed all the settlements from Gaza, Soon after, Hamas took over. And when Hamas took over, they said our aim is to destroy Israel completely. Our aim isn't to have a Palestinian state in Gaza and West Bank. Our aim is to completely destroy Israel. So for that reason, Israel put a blockade all around Gaza. That blockade resulted in Gaza becoming the 
very poor, even poorer than it was before, because they can't get anything in, they can't get anything out. So that's that's what happens. You know, a lot of the Palestinians, you might see even in today's paper, there's an article in the New York Times, they say, listen, why start on October the 7th? October the 7th didn't happen all by itself. It happened as a result of what we were just mentioning before. Israel had blockaded the, the, the Gaza Strip for so long, and people just, it has the highest unemployment in the world because, you know, there's no economy there. So therefore, what they're saying is, well, all these kinds of frustrations led to this attack. So what they're saying is, don't start on October 7th, go back to the whole, to, to what, what the Israelis were doing before. And my, my point would be fine, except that if you want to go back, let's go back to 1947, when they had a chance to have a state, and they didn't want it because they wanted all of Israel. So that, that would be my point. How far back do you want to go? I'm sorry. Well, the rockets, yeah, the rockets were coming from Gaza pretty well from the time Hamas took over. Uh, you know, that's why the Iron Dome system was invented to shoot down those rockets. Um, I don't. I think that the Western world. It's difficult for the Western world to understand the exact position that Israel is in um, because they don't have a hostile nation or a hostile people on their borders who want to destroy them. You know, uh, they don't, they can't see the sort of life or death um, choices that Israelis feel they have. That's the first. The second thing is, is that the massacre itself of 1,400 people now reduced to 1,200 people and the brutality of it, if any of these Western countries could, could uh, extrapolate from that and say, okay, uh, let's say France has 65 million people, which is eight times Israel. So multiply eight times 1,200, you get 10,000. You say to France, okay, imagine if somebody next door to you came in and murdered 10,000 people on one day, and the way they did it, how they were so proud of it. Well, what would you do in this situation? It's very hard for them to, to, to understand that. And, that. and that's what makes, you know, that's what makes the, the pictures of the babies in the hospital and the pictures of the destroyed buildings, that's what catches their attention. Yeah, well, it, you know, and, and you know, when you talk about proportionality, you say, well, okay, you know, how many Israelis have been killed and how many Palestinians have been killed? So, well, does that mean that Israel shouldn't shoot down the rockets that come to, to Israel? Therefore, there should be more Israeli casualties and then you'd be satisfied? You know, well, what would you do if rockets were coming at you all the time? Would you say, oh, I want to have a lot of casualties, so that will give us the excuse to give casualties on their side. Or would you say, no, we have to defend our country by using our brains to shoot down these rockets. So that's why 
this idea of proportionality is not a fair idea. It's not a fair measure because the intention of Hamas is to kill many more people, but Israel has, has prevented that from happening. Well, according to their plans, they wanted to take over the whole country, you know, that they could, you know. Anyway, thank you so much for coming, uh, taking your time to come, and it's my real pleasure to be here and to see you all in person again. Like I said at the beginning, uh, COVID really had quite an effect, and um, I hope to see you on Zoom in February, and then you know, I'll be back in person uh, after Passover. So have a great winter. Thank you very much. Thank you on Zoom. People who are on Zoom, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, and I hope that you continue to tune in and be with your car. And thanks again to Coach St. Bye.